Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's featured message. Thanks, Debbie. I'll uh, echo that. Happy Valentine's Day. Let's talk about horrifying crises. <laughs> okay, so on January 31st, 2012, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, you've heard of it, it's famous for its race for the cure and its pink ribbons. Komen announced it would no longer fund breast exams through Planned Parenthood. It was a huge decision for Komen, and I think we can assume that it was taken after a lot of thought and a lot of debate. February 3rd, three days later, Coleman reversed that decision. What happened between Tuesday, January 31st and Friday, February 3rd? Social media happened. According to the New York Times, by the end of that week, Twitter users had sent more than 1.3 million tweets mentioning Coleman, Planned Parenthood, and related terms. On Thursday alone, there were more than 460,000 tweets on the subject. Just three of the top 28 hashtags supported Coleman's move. Among the most popular hashtags were Boycott Coleman, Shame on You, Corrupt Charity, and my favorite, Race for the Crazy. There were also thousands of critical comments on Coleman's Facebook page. In contrast, Planned Parenthood added 32,000 fans over those four days. There's a quote from Planned Parenthood's then-CEO, Cecile Richards. I absolutely believe that the explosion of Facebook and Twitter really drove a lot of the coverage on mainstream media as well. Coleman lost money, and it lost supporters. Several top Coleman officials, including the CEO, lost their jobs. The LA Times called it one of the great PR faux pas of the decade. In the fiscal year... Ending in March of 2013, Coleman was down more than $77 million, 22% of the foundation's income, compared with the year before. There were other factors here. If you remember that time, there was a general economic slump, and there was a continuing trend down in race for the cure participation. But Coleman officials themselves attributed a lion's share of that loss to the social media controversy. And even beyond the dollars, perhaps the greatest hit was incurred by Coleman's reputation. So you all run businesses you oversee organizations, ask yourself, what's your greatest uninsured asset? And I'll answer for you. It's your reputation. Now, are you or your organization going to face a firestorm on social media like Coleman faced? No, you probably won't. And you certainly hope you won't. But you're going to face critics on Facebook or Twitter. You're going to be faced with a situation where someone posts something false or misleading about you or your organization. You face a situation where someone in your organization posts an unfortunate tweet or Facebook post. I'll take that bet. So remember, Coleman happened now seven years ago. It's still instructive to study, I think, if you want to watch a social media explosion and what it means on the bad end of going viral. But what's happened since is the temperature on social media only has risen. The speed at which news and information, including incomplete news and information, moves has only gotten faster since then. And it's this simple. In the modern world of digital communications, your reputation is at risk more than it has ever been. Here are just a few of the ways your organization's reputation could be called into question, subjected to intense scrutiny. You have data breaches, discrimination complaints, sexual misconduct, God forbid, an active shooter in your workplace. Or, and again, this could never happen to you, right? Someone performs an inappropriate social media post who's associated with your company or organization. Any one of them could be a crisis. And any one of them can play out on social media. So a gentleman who's in the same business as I am named James Lukashevsky, he's a noted crisis consultant. He said this about crises, 
and I really like it. I'm going to quote him. We define crises as show-stopping, people-stopping, product-stopping, and or reputation-defining situations that create victims and or explosive visibility. Explosive, unplanned visibility. That's what real, that's when you know you're in a crisis. You've all handled issues, and we do issues management too at Hennis. An issue may be you have to have a layoff at your company, or you're getting a new CEO, or you have some other leadership change. That's something you can see coming. You've probably dealt with it before. You can plan for it. Crises are a different animal. They come at you from nowhere. There's usually someone injured physically or psychologically from them, and you can't plan. You can plan for them, and we're going to talk about that, but you can't see them coming. And they expose you to that explosive, unplanned visibility. We're going to talk about all the classic fundamentals today of crisis communication and how to respond. But I want to look particularly, and it's not not all going to be about Twitter and Facebook, but I do want to look particularly at social media because today, crisis and issue management is done through the lens of social media. Crises occur first on social media. News occurs first on social media. That's where you learn about it time and time again. We see these events first on social media. The organization or person faced with the crisis has to respond first on social media. Social media is made for explosive, unplanned visibility. So how fast is social media reporting on events, especially events that you or your organization might consider a crisis? It's faster than you. I was researching schools and social media responses last year, and I found a situation involving a school in Westfield, New York. It was not a crisis. In fact, it was a minor school bus accident with no injuries. But what I was struck by is what the school district board of education president told the local newspaper. And again, I quote, parents need to realize that we will never be able to notify them of an incident before it hits social media. That's really honest and really blatant and really true. It's brutal honesty in acknowledging a reality these times. The people you care about the most, your key shareholders, your citizens, if you're in public office, your customers, if you're in business, your business partners, your employees are more likely than ever to find out something bad about you on social media or some other social media on Facebook, Twitter, some other social media outlet before you can tell them. I want to use one more example. It was about a year ago. You probably remember this. It was Southwest Airlines flight 1380. An engine ruptured and shrapnel broke a window and a passenger was blown partly outside the window, and the passenger died, that crisis was live because a passenger tapped into the airline Wi-Fi and put it on Facebook Live. Other passengers started tweeting about what was happening on that plane as it happened. And then videos and photos were posted from inside the cabin once the plane was safely on the ground. We saw what Coleman went through in a period of three days in 2013. Imagine your crisis playing out live on Facebook or Twitter. By the way, Southwest obviously a very large company that deals with crises. They had a social media listening team that fed real-time information to the executives. That's priceless information when you're dealing with a crisis. But let's get real here. How many people here in their organizations have a social media listening team ready to jump in? So that's why what I want to talk about today is give you a bunch of simple, pragmatic tools that you can apply to any kind of crisis, and especially a crisis involving social media. You don't have to be a social media expert to do it. You don't have to hire me or a social media expert to do it for you. And I want to do it through examples of organizations that handled crises successfully. Because I don't know about you, I've always learned best by looking at stuff that worked. So quick logistical note, I'm going to get through this and leave time. I'm going to honor your time, but I'm also going to leave time for questions. But if you have questions or comments along the way, please feel free.
You don't have to stand up here and be lectured by me for the next 50 minutes. Sunday of Labor Day weekend in 2017, the leadership of a private school saw a tweet posted at the school. The tweet was directed at the school, and it simply said, handle this. And that was this. It was a screen capture from Snapchat that showed a group of students from that school in a discussion that included liberal use of racial slurs, including the N-word, references to the KKK, and sexual references. And remember, the students said to the school, handle this. Here's how the school handled it. Immediately posted a tweet that Sunday saying they were aware of the problem, that such hate speech had no place at their school, and that they were investigating further. The head of the upper school, excuse me, emailed upper school students on Monday morning and said there would be a school assembly at 8 a.m. Tuesday. The head of school emailed the full school community saying the school was aware of the social media posts, that they violated the school's code of conduct, that the parents of students involved had been contacted, and that meetings would follow Tuesday and there would be more to come. The Tuesday 8 a.m. school assembly included addresses from the head of the upper school, student leaders from the Black Student Union, student leaders from the student council. They live tweeted those remarks, the school did, and they put video links on Twitter and Facebook. Then the head of school followed up with another email to the full school community Tuesday evening, reporting on the latest events, including the upper school assembly. The school also was ready with a special website page it had built in advance that had links to all of the above and more on the incident, including a link to the student handbook and the code of conduct policy. Now, was it still rough on the school? It absolutely was. It was a fairly large metropolitan area. The big newspaper in town got involved. So did all three of the TV stations. Parents, many of them reacted as you would expect, but they split. Some said the school overreacted to private social media posts. Others said the school was already whitewashing the incident and they were demanding the students be expelled. But the school also got a lot of support. And I think that support was driven by its own fast reaction, including the original student who had posted on Twitter saying, handle this, who now posted saying he appreciated his school's rapid response and that he would always be loyal to the school. And they got tweets like this one. How quality school leadership successfully turns racist behavior of a few of their own into a teachable moment to build a better community. And the crisis went away. Now, selfishly, I'd like to think the school was prepared because they worked with us. They worked with Hannes Communications. I'd actually gone there some months before, done a presentation like this. Media trained their upper school leadership. And we went over their crisis communications plan, which included details like having a website ready. But they deserve the credit for taking to heart a fundamental lesson of crisis management. You can't predict a crisis, but you can plan for them. And today, you can plan for that crisis to either start on social media or largely play out there. So what we do at Hennis is we help you assess the danger and deal with it. We help you grasp the opportunity and take advantage of it. Communication is often the last thing that an organization or a business amid a crisis thinks about, but it is the first thing that those key stakeholders see from you about the crisis. So you cannot communicate your way out of a crisis. You have to act your way out. But if you don't communicate those actions, even if you do the right thing, you can come out of it with your reputation damaged. If you do communicate those actions and you do the right thing, you can come out with your reputation intact or even enhanced. So in companies, municipalities, we work with government agencies, we work with law firms, hospitals, universities, they often call for someone like us. We are not a traditional PR firm. We don't do media relations. We don't do branding. We don't do any of that. We do only crisis and issues management and communications. And our job is to make the story better, to make your story shorter, and ideally to make your story go away, right? Because crises today 
are more often played out in the court of public opinion than they are in the court of law. Most lawsuits are settled long before going to court. But when your crisis hits, the court of public opinion convenes immediately. And where is it first convened? On Facebook, on Twitter, on Snapchat, and on other social media outlets. So with all that as backdrop, to help control the court of public opinion, we use something we call the damage control playbook. These are five simple concepts that we believe and we know through practice If you adopt amid the crisis, you can come out with your reputation intact. And if you forget the last four and do number one, you have a good chance of surviving. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Even if you don't believe it's the moral thing to do, it is the pragmatic thing to do to survive a crisis. Because ask yourselves, how often is it that the organization is most damaged not by the original sin, but by the cover-up? If you lie, your credibility is shot. And I promise you, if you don't tell the truth, the truth will come out. And it's the same with spin. People often think of people like me as spin doctors. If people call us, if a potential client calls us and asks us to spin, we don't want to work with them because spinning is just like lying. And frankly, we're not going down with you. Tell it first. Why? Because if you don't, someone else will. Frequently counsel clients who have bad news to break the bad news themselves. It allows you to take control of your story. It allows you to get your voice out there in that crucial early cycle when people are first learning about what happened to you or your organization. Tell it all for the same reason, because if you don't, someone else will. Now, this one actually should come with an asterisk, or I should eventually change it to tell as much as you can, because there are reasons that you can't tell it all. First of all, when a crisis first hits, you don't know it all. You're dealing with the crisis, and you're trying to figure out what happened. There are privacy issues involved. HIPAA may come into play. Student privacy, FERPA may come into play. It may be a personnel issue, but tell as much of your story as you can to control your story. Then your story has a chance to be front and center as the story. Tell it fast. Already at this point, you should know why, because social media isn't going to wait. Digital communications aren't going to wait. And if you get nothing else from today, I do want you to walk out of here remembering this. Who has heard of the term? Because it is that this is the most fundamental change in media and in news reporting that I saw in my 33 years in the business. Who in here has heard of the term iterative reporting? Anybody? Don't feel bad. Nobody ever has. But it's being practiced in every newsroom right now, from the Ravenna, from the Record Courier, to the Beacon Journal, to the Plain Dealer, to the New York Times. The way iterative journalism works, well, here's the reason that it's such a sea change. So one of the fundamental tenets of journalism when I was coming up, and I started on a typewriter, so I go back to the Pleistocene era, But one of the fundamental tenets was, if you and you and you were key parts of a story, we didn't publish the story until we had done our darndest to get in touch with you and you and you. You had to be in the story, or we had to at least try to put you in the story. And I was screamed at by editors, and I screamed at reporters more than a few times, you don't have the story, because they hadn't gotten in touch with you or you or you. And if it was bad news, you dodged us. And we knew that. You didn't return our calls. You weren't at your office. You weren't available. And so we went to your office. We tried to follow you. We went to your home. We left business cards in your door. Sometimes we sent registered mail on particularly sensitive stories just so that we could prove we tried to get a hold of you. And we did that frequently at risk of losing the story or getting beat on the story. That fundamental tenet is gone. In the iterative journalism process, we'll still try to call, and all the reporters I know still will try to call you and you and you once. And if you're not available and they have the basic facts of the story, they still have to know the basic facts. And for ethical journalists, it has to be true to the degree that they know it. But they're going with the story and they're going to put it online. And then they're going to build the story in pieces, iteratively. 
And as they build it, they're going to tweet it and they're going to post updates to Facebook and they're going to do all the ways that we reach readers these days. You know why? And the story is built iteratively. And if, if you think about it, particularly with a breaking news story, go to a news website and you can watch this happen. And it's not a bad thing. It's not unethical. Nothing bad about it. But it's bad for you and you and you if for legitimate reasons you weren't available because your voice isn't going to be in that story. So why has this sea change happened? It's happened because of the Internet and because of digital communications. <laughs> Readership has always driven, has always been a primary motivator. You know, you want people to read your story, or else why do the story? And you want as many readers as you can get. Well, back around two or three years ago, while I was still at the Plain Dealer, we crossed one Rubicon, and more than half of the traffic to Cleveland.com, and by the way, that's millions of readers on a monthly basis, more than half of those readers came to Cleveland.com through Google and through Facebook, and that's only increased. Almost nobody, I still do, and maybe you do, but almost nobody else types in www.cleveland.com and then look around at the stories. They hear about something that happened with Hennis Communications or the Portage Safety Council, and that's what they search for. So we don't know how Google Analytics works, but we know this. They reward speed. The first to the story is higher in the search results. And the higher in the search results you are, the more readers you can get. To the point where we used to tell people at cleveland.com, you have to be fast enough to be in the first three search results. If you're not on the first page, if you're not in the first three search results, you're losing thousands of readers. If you're not on the first page, you're dead. Journalism has always been about speed, but it is more so. It is now about hyperspeed. So let's play this out. And let's say you get involved in something like this. And you probably won't, but let's say you do. And you want your voice in that story. You have a story to tell. You want to tell the truth and you want to tell as much of it as you can. So you call the reporter back and you say, hey, Tom, I'm sorry I wasn't available. I want to be in the story. And the reporter says, "Okay, I'll update the story. No, ask for a new story with a new headline. And you got to give me enough. But you're going to tell we've already done this. You're going to tell the truth. You're going to tell me as much as you can. And it's going to justify a new story. Why do that? Because it resets the Google search engine. And your story has a chance to jump up in the search results and be seen by more people, which is, after all, the point of this, right? We want your voice out there. We want your story to be told and seen and heard. Now, here's the reason that that's important. How many people read news on these? Come on. Right. So we crossed another Rubicon while I was at the Plain Dealer. And we already had all these people coming up through search. It's now about 60%. At the time I was there, we crossed 50% of readers primarily consume news on these. Not through print, not on a desktop, not on a laptop. The Pew Center for Research is considered the best source for assessing how Americans read, how they consume news. In December, for the first time in the history of the Pew Center surveys, social media exceeded print newspapers as a primary source for news. In 1996, when I was in the middle of my journalism career, 72% of Americans said print material was their primary source for news. In December, it was down to 16%. Nobody is reading print. Everybody is reading on these. And so you ask yourself, this is why you don't want that updated story. You read stories on these, right? How many of you go back on these and search around and see if that story got updated? Oh, God bless you, sir. There's always a couple. You're a hell of a news consumer. Most people don't. Because what is this? It's just a river of stories. In fact, that's what they call it in newsrooms. They call it the river. And when your story's in the river, it goes, and the next 15 stories come up, you know, along with cat videos and lists of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's best artists and everything else, right? So you have to get into that. You have to break through that. That's some of the noise that you now have to break through. Any questions about iterative reporting? 
So I do want you to understand it. If for no other reason, forget crisis, it's kind of media 101. It's kind of news consumption 101. And I think the more people that understand it, the better. All right, number five, tell it to the people who matter most. So we've been talking about media a lot and mass media. The fact of the matter is if you're caught in a crisis, there are going to be a whole heck of a lot of people who see that in the media, don't know you, don't care about you. We want to get to the people who do most care about you, to your staffers, to your business partners, to your customers, to your vendors, to your citizens, if you're running a city, right? There are a lot of different ways to do that. You can email, we can phone, you can call them. But one of the best ways is social media. People who care most about you and digital communications, people who care most about you are going to go to your website to see what happened. They're going to go to your Facebook page. They're going to go to your Twitter feed. You need to be there telling your story. So if you want to know why social media matters, why it's not just the Kardashians and cat videos, that's why it matters, particularly from a crisis communication standpoint. Here's another reason. When you communicate directly with those key stakeholders, you go around the filters that come with the media. I love being a newspaper man, but it's not the best form of communication for when you're trying to communicate during a crisis. Why? Because as a reporter, oh, I wrote down everything you said, but I didn't use it. I used a little bit of it. I used a quote here and there, and I quoted other people who might have a different point of view. And I used your facts, but then I used other facts. And then we write a headline. We've all seen how often the headline doesn't really reflect the story, right? And we know that people read headlines a lot more than they read full stories. And we've all seen how meaning can change when you move a comma. So what we want to do is get around all that to get to your most important audiences directly. Because one of the things we found is that when you get your story and it is truthful and it is as complete as it can be to your key stakeholders, they will then believe you going forward, including in the face of media reports, other people's reports, social media posts that don't necessarily agree with your story. That's why being prepared and getting out is so important. Now, it's particularly prevalent with problem stories. And problem stories are, are mo what's most often, what's most often uh, the way a crisis is reported. I saw when I used to do this as a journalist to crowds like this, and during the question and answer session, inevitably, somebody would say, why do you just do bad news? And we didn't, and they don't now. If you really went through and rated them off and graded them, you'd find a lot of stories that are neutral. You'd find a lot of stories that actually are good news. But journalists do do a lot of bad news, and people tend to remember the bad news. I'll date myself again. I saw David Brinkley once, and someone asked him the inevitable question, why do you just do bad news? And he said, well, you know, if I'm driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour, and I have a blowout, I don't pull my car to the side of the road, get out, and praise the three tires that still have air. I fix the flat. That's what journalism at its highest calling is about, to point out the flats and suggest how they can be fixed. But if you're caught up in a problem story, it's probably going to be characterized like this. We call it a 3V story. There's a villain, a victim, and a vindicator. Victim, obviously, is whoever was damaged or perceived that damage was done to them. The villain, most often, is the business, is the organization, is the person being accused of something. And of course, the vindicator is the whistleblower, is the person who brought the story. A lot of times, it's the journalist himself or herself writing it on their white charger. First of all, you have to want to be the vindicator. You have to want to fix the problem if there was a problem or correct the misperception if it's a misperception. But if you want to be the vindicator, we want to make sure that you are cast as the vindicator. That's part of the truth part. So we work very hard for our clients to get them to be perceived as the vindicator. You know what flies in the face of being a vindicator? No comment.
And that is people's instinct when they're faced with a crisis, when they're faced with bad news. I love attorneys. I have a lot of them in my family. We get a lot of business from attorneys. A lot of attorneys' knee-jerk reaction is no comment. What do you think when you see someone say no comment? Guilty. Or they're hiding something, right? Because otherwise, why wouldn't they comment? So yeah, no comment equals guilty. And by the way, can't be reached for comment is the first cousin of no comment. Because if they had a story to tell, if they had a defense to put up, They'd be damn sure they got reached for comment, right? So we do fight a lot with attorneys about no comment. We argue that there is always something you can say, including in those situations where privacy has to prevail. But better than no comment is, you know, I can't talk about that because there are privacy issues involved. There are health issues involved. There are personnel issues involved. But what I can tell you is, and then give them something, beats the heck out of no comment, and you'll be perceived as hiding from the bad news. So what about when you are the villain? You know, good things or bad things happen to good people. Sometimes bad things happen to good organizations. So when you are the villain, what we recommend is that you fess up and you fix up. Take accountability, take responsibility, but make sure in that initial messaging that you are vowing to fix what happened, that you're going to find out what happened and you're going to fix it. Don't deny, don't spin, but do pivot as quickly as possible to moving forward and fixing it. Don't do this. This was, you'll remember, here's another airline. This was the United Airlines situation in which the guy was dragged off the plane and he was bloodied. And of course, it was on cell phone video because everything is on cell phone video, right? So United didn't react to that situation. It had gone viral and United for hours didn't react. And hours on the internet might as well be months. And then when they did react, the United CEO released this statement, which made the famous the term reaccommodate. As in, I apologize for having to reaccommodate these customers. Who talks like that? Nobody. Lawyers, and I'll bet you a lawyer drafted that. But, oh, by the way, if you want to test that, the next time you make your spouse, it's Valentine's Day. So when you make your spouse or your loved one or your significant other mad tonight, suggest that you're sorry and you want to reaccommodate their feelings and see how that goes. What if the initial response had sounded something like this? I am appalled at what I've learned happened on this United flight. We're still gathering details, but I want to say how sorry I am to the passenger who went through this and the passengers who watched it. These are our customers. They're the reason we're in business. We're going to find out exactly what happened and why. I'm going to personally be involved in that. And we're going to see what changes we need to make so that it never happens again. It still would have been bad. The video still would have gone viral. They still would have gotten flamed on social media but they wouldn't have made it worse with a non-apology apology apology like this. So there is an effective way to apologize. And by the way, two of the most powerful words when you are at fault, when you are at risk of being cast as the villain is I'm sorry. But there is an effective way to say I'm sorry. There was a wonderful Harvard Business Review story written in 2015 that suggested those are the key components to effective apologies. And I actually like the last one best. It is a reflection of your organization's values. I'm going to go ahead and assume that your businesses, your organizations, your schools have good core values. Go to them when the crisis hits. And I doubt that one of those core values is hide and say nothing. I'll bet those core values talk about responsibility and accountability and wanting to do the right thing. So when the crisis hits, go to your core values. The story added this, by the way, an apology enables an executive to express concern and conveys the organization's values. So again, though, if you don't believe in the moral value of saying you're sorry, believe in the objective value. It works. And it works based on real research. 
This is objective, not subjective information. The most studies have been in the healthcare industry. So for example, litigation is reduced after apologies. We know that at hospitals. And a lot of times the lawyers, again, I'm picking on lawyers a lot today, but they will say, we can't apologize. We're going to have a lawsuit. We're going to be writing a check. And we will say, I got news for you. You're at fault. You're going to be writing a check anyway. The question is, how big is that check going to be? And when you write the check, are you going to be the organization that was full of the soulless, empty suit organization that refused accountability and responsibility and just wrote a check to make it go away? Or the organization that stepped up and tried to do the right thing and was transparent and is still writing a check? But the research shows the New York Times story was a famous story. VA in Kentucky malpractice suits decreased after full disclosure and apology policy. If you're interested in learning more about this, there's a really cool website called sorryworks.net that is kind of dedicated to the study of effective apologies. It started in the healthcare industry, but it's expanded out since. And they have tips like this. Again, pragmatic, practical tips that you can put in place for effective apologies that will help move you out of that villain role and help end that crisis. The last one, again, is my favorite. Do not do non-apologies apologies, you know? And you see this a lot. People have gotten the apology thing, by the way. So they rush out and apologize. But the apologies suck. They're things like, I'm sorry people were offended. Are you sorry people were offended or are you sorry for what you did? I'm sorry you feel that way. Are you sorry for how I feel or are you sorry for what you did to me? If you're going to do that kind of apology, don't bother, all right? Now, let's talk a little more about social media. Let me go back for a second. Social media isn't in technology. It's an enduring cultural shift. And this is how you use it to deal with a crisis. By the way, September 2017, I'll go to the Pew Institute again. September 2017, Pew Institute study reported that 67% of U.S. adults get news on social media. That went from zero to 67 in about seven years. In most urgent breaking news situations, Twitter is the go-to news outlet. Last summer was the two-year anniversary of the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Remember that? That was a landmark event for a number of, of sad reasons, but also for people who do what I do. It was a signature event because it was one of the first of these, if not the first, where people learned of the event through Twitter. This was how it got, this was how the news broke. 2.17 a.m. on June 12th, someone hiding in a bathroom said there was an active shooter. Police responded very quickly and effectively and took the shooter down. What did they do to report that news? They went to Twitter. So they announced on Twitter first that the shooter inside the club is dead. If you want an object example and how fast and how profoundly communications has changed, imagine this. This was the most important news in the Orlando Police Department's history, and they reported it first on Twitter because they knew that's where people would be and that's where they would get it. Just as Twitter is the place for so for that people go for breaking news. Oh, here's some stats on Twitter, by the way. I don't like reading PowerPoint slides, and I won't subject you to that. But that's an idea of how dominant Twitter has become. And by the way, if you, one of the things, two things that I want to point out is the next to last bullet point, verified accounts. If you don't know what verified accounts are, basically you apply to Twitter for a verified account. I have one from when I was a journalist. And it's Twitter's way of saying, hey, this person kind of knows what they're talking about, or they're an authority in their field, or they're experienced at this, or we've liked their previous tweets, so trust them. And they put that little kind of check mark and a cloudy thing next to your name on Twitter. The reason that's important in a crisis, this is one of the basics of, of threat assessment for crisis uh, on social media. If your bad news is getting posted and retweeted by people with verified accounts, you have a bigger problem because people tend to believe them and retweet them more. And that's how things go viral. That's one of the ways things go viral on Twitter. The last bullet point I'll point out, this has nothing to do with a crisis. 
but there was a survey done and 60% of consumers who are active on Twitter, not all consumers, but 60% of consumers who are active on Twitter expect brands, I hate those kind of buzzwords, but they expect brands to respond to a Twitter query within the hour. Think about that. And if you don't, the study went on to say, your brand is diminished. Your reputation suffers in their eyes. Who is on Twitter monitoring to that point, right? But it's a reason that you need to be aware of it. And if at all possible, if you're at all responsible for your organization's reputation, you need to be aware of that. And you need to think about how you can possibly monitor Twitter. Just as Twitter is the place that news breaks, Facebook is the place that we tell other people about stuff. 81% of all content shared in the United States is now shared on Facebook. That's millions millions and millions pieces of content. Facebook, though, is a great way for distributing and receiving info during a crisis, for getting to your key stakeholders, for getting your message out. If you have an established following, if you're active on Facebook and you're there ahead of the crisis, this is arguably the most powerful tool we now have for distributing and receiving info amid an ongoing crisis. So I get all of this can be intimidating. You weren't hired to be a social media expert. You don't have a social media expert in your organization. Here are things you can do. Before the crisis hits, know where your audience lives. And that means simply, I mean, it could be that you are an organization, a business, an entity that really isn't active on social media and neither are the people you care about. Fine. If you know that, you've assessed that and you know that, forget it. Don't worry about it. But if you do have a Facebook page, if you do have a Twitter page, if you do have a website, then know where those key people that you need to get to during a crisis, do they mostly use your website? Then depend on that. Do they go to your Facebook page actively? Then get ready to use it. Obviously, secure your accounts because one of the other games that happens now is when the crisis hits, hackers will try to take over the account of the organization that the crisis is happening to. It's like a game. So make sure your, your accounts are secured if you have them. Establish terms of use. This is less illegal than a social media kind of rule. There really isn't any legality behind it. But people will often ask me, so if I have a Facebook page and people post nasty things about me or my business, should I take them down? Should I take down the comments? Normally, I say be careful with that because people will screenshot and then they'll screenshot it with their comment and they'll screenshot it without it. And then they accuse you of violating their First Amendment rights, which, of course, you haven't done. But now your crisis just has a new mini crisis. But have terms of use somewhere on your website if you invite comment. Somewhere on your Facebook page. In, fa in the case of Facebook, we recommend the About section. Post your rules of engagement. No profanity. No racism. No sexism. You know, no personal attacks. And then when it happens, they're out. And post a comment that says, we remove that comment because it violates our terms of use. And by the way, you can find our terms of use in the About section. It's your Facebook page. It's kind of like it's your house. You don't let people jump on the couch, right? Well, don't let people violate your terms of use on your social media, but have them. Build a following, promote interaction so that you can go there, so that you can go there amid the crisis and use it to your advantage. Now, let's say you're facing a threat or criticism on social media. How do you evaluate it to help determine whether you should respond? Where did it originate? If it started offline, if people were talking about it and then it moved to online, it's worse or vice versa. That just means more people are doing it. Again, these are simple assessments that you can do. Who's the source? Is it someone in a position to know? Is it an ex-employee? Is it a family member? Is it a current employee? Your crisis is worse because the people on social media will believe them, share it on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, put it on their Instagram. Is it catching fire online? Is it being retweeted? Is it being shared? If it is, you better respond pretty soon. And finally, if it moves to conventional media, and all media, by the way, now uses social media as a big source, you have a bigger problem. 
I want to give you an illustration of how things go viral. So this was a situation. It was the uh, night of the last presidential election. This was a guy, Eric Tucker, who lived in Austin, Texas. And by the way, one of the uh, one of the measures, I wouldn't fall in love with all my social media rules because they keep changing. And this is one that is changing. So one of the ways you assess threat on social media is how many followers does this person have? You get attacked by somebody on Twitter with 10 followers. And by the way, most people on Twitter have very few followers. We would, especially in the past, would have said, ignore it, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Don't feed a very small fire. Just ignore it. For the most part, that's still true. Except then comes an Eric Tucker. He had 40 Twitter followers. 40 Twitter followers is nothing. He saw these buses in Austin and he posted this. He said the buses were anti-Trump protesters who were paid to come in. It had been kind of a campaign theme and he claimed to have found it, right? 40 Twitter followers. No big deal, right? He posted a couple more pictures and tweets, said here was hard evidence that the paid Trump protesters had come to town. By the way, I don't care about your politics. This isn't about politics. This is about crisis communications and how things go viral on social media. In fact, the buses were part of a software conference that drew 13,000 people to Austin. A few hours later, the tweet was posted to a Reddit site that served as a community for Trump followers under the heading breaking, they found the buses. Dozens lined up just blocks away from the Austin protests. Next morning, a discussion forum called Free Republic picked up the Reddit post and it made its way to Facebook and away we go. It got shared 307,616 times. So a guy with 40 Twitter followers now has had his story seen by more people than most newspapers have circulation these days. Some real reporters got involved, by the way. They contacted the bus company and a spokesman said at no point were Coach USA buses involved in any Austin protests. That got overwhelmed, though, by these. Finally, on November 11th, Eric Tucker, who I'd like to think at this point was shell-shocked, right, by what he had wrought, he posted this. Unfortunately, that only got retweeted 16,931 times. He also told the New York Times for the record that he voted for Gary Johnson. (laughs) And he added, anytime you see me in the future going out there where I think there's going to be a big audience, I can assure you I'm going to try my best to be balanced with the facts and be very clear what is opinion and what is not. Thank you, Eric. That is an extreme example, right? And it came amid the most hypercharged partisan election of my lifetime. But it is an example that you can't just depend on someone having few followers because things can go viral on their own. So here's some guiding principles for how to win on social media. You have to be willing to be transparent. If you do want to hide things, if you don't want to participate, then stay off of social media. Don't try to use social media for crisis communications. You have to be responsive, obviously. If people are posting things about you on social media, you have to be able to respond. Have you all heard of confirmation bias? Confirmation bias has been studied for years. It goes back to the Greeks. But particularly in the era of social media, it's gotten quite interesting. Confirmation bias is basically a social science phenomenon that we know about where people who have really deeply held beliefs when faced with facts, facts, not fake news, facts, that incontrovertibly say that their beliefs are wrong, believe it more. You know, it's why we have people that authentically believe the earth is flat. And that blowback effect of them digging in harder, that's what can make a crisis particularly acute and tough to get out of. A false narrative emerges about you if you don't do anything to the point where confirmation bias sets in and people believe it no matter what they're faced with, you face a very high hill. One of the main tools against confirmation bias, again, is get out there. Get your story out there. As we said, you have to act. You have to act your way out of a crisis, but then you have to communicate it. You have to be human. It is social media. I'll give you a couple of my favorite examples. So this was the person that ran the Red Cross's Twitter feed a few years ago, thought she was sending this to her friend via direct message on Twitter. 
but she was using a service called Hootsuite, and instead she sent it to every Red Cross Twitter follower. Who learned that at the Red Cross, when they drink, they do it right, they get slizzard? The Red Cross social media director saw this, took it down, too late, it had been screenshot, and it started getting shared more, with people saying, hey, check it out, the Red Cross posted this, now they took it down, isn't this funny? So then, the Red Cross social media director, thinking on her feet, did something really smart. She posted that. <laughs> right? Dogfish Head Beer, which is what the Red Cross gets lizard on, they staged a fundraiser, raised $30,000 for the Red Cross. Red Cross Twitter followers and Facebook friends went up in the wake of this. Let me show you another example. Just last year in the United Kingdom, Kentucky Fried Chicken ran out of chicken. All 900 outlets. It was they had switched distributors and they just didn't have any chicken. So what did people in the United Kingdom do when they couldn't get chicken? They went to Twitter. And who else did they complain to, officer? Yes, the police. <laughs> to the point where the Manchester police felt called upon to post, please do not contact us about the KFC crisis. It is not a police matter if your favorite eatery is not serving the menu that you desire. Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, faced with this problem, saw this happening, and they put this on Twitter. <laughs> now, for the record, I am not suggesting that you try something like this. I don't want to see anybody get fired, but it worked. They also, by the way, followed that up very quickly with a very effective apology. Then they reprinted that in The Guardian and other UK newspapers the next day. Both of them, by the way. The point being, you have to look human on social media. It is social media. And this is not, this is chicken, right? No one was hurt. No one was killed. You don't try that with something like that. But if you're running KFC, if you're running a business and something like this happens to you, it can damage your reputation forever. So being human on social media can go a long way. This is something that we've cooked up at Hennis called the Response Decision Tool. Because part of the problem with social media is how do you plan for it? It's so viral. It's so intense. You're just caught up in just a, it's just chaos. So we've used this with one client. It's brand new and it worked out okay. The client liked it. What we do is we sit down with you ahead of time and we come up with, so what are your goals? What, you know, what are your biggest fears? What are the crises you most fear? And then what are your goals? And we match those up. And what's your profile like on social media? How do you like to use it? And through that, this is just a little portion of our little chart. We come up with a chart that we leave with you that can show you what to do amid a crisis and how to respond immediately on social media. Because when the crisis hits, is not the time to start thinking, hmm, I wonder what I should say. You can plan for them. Perhaps not exactly, but at least close enough. All right? We're getting close here, right? Yes, we are. All right. So again, these are action steps that you can take. You don't need me. You don't need a social media expert. You got to be, but you do have to monitor. You have to know what people are saying about you out there to know whether you should respond. Don't let mistakes live on. If there are actual factual errors, if people are saying things about you that are not factually true, and I emphasize factually true, correct them. Because you don't want to be silent in the face of that and let that live forever on the internet because it will live forever. So if someone says Hennis communication sucks, I don't think that's a fact, but they do. It's an opinion. There's nothing I can do about it. But if they say, or little I can do about it, other than trying to prove we don't, but if they say Hennis communications claims to have all these people with all this media experience and they don't have any, that's a factual error. And I'm going to correct that. And I'm going to try to link to some independent source that shows I worked in newspapers for 33 years. And I was the managing editor of three papers and the editor of another. And I'm going to do it once. 
Because inevitably, and I promise you, because I've personally experienced this, particularly when I was in the comment boards on newspaper sites, a horrifying place, by the way, and trying to not let mistakes live on, they will immediately come back and accuse you of lying or call you a jackass or worse. Don't arm wrestle with them. Let it go. Because remember, when you're, particularly if you're in a social media situation where you're trying to deal with a critic, you're not trying to win over that critic. You won't. You're trying to reassure all the people who are seeing this that do like you and trust you and trust your business and wonder what you're going to do about it. That's who you're trying to win the day with. Forget the troll. Pause before hitting delete. As I talked to earlier, before you take down a critical comment, think about other ways to do it. One of those ways is get them offline. Reach out to those people. I don't This probably speaks to what has happened to customer service in America. But when you reach out to someone who is upset with you or your organization or your business and you try to get them to email or even better, talk to me, it is amazing how often they will back down. To the point where more than a few times we have gotten online critics to take down their posts or even better, leave it up and post that, hey, they talked to me. I was wrong. My problem is solved. God bless them. That's really what you're going for. That's gold on social media. If you do get involved in a news story and there are comments about you or your organization that you believe are false or that are personal attacks or that violate something else, get a hold of somebody at the news media organization. And most often look for someone called the engagement editor or the audience editor or the online editor. You can try to get the editor, but as an ex-editor, I can tell you we can be hard to get a hold of. But you get a hold of that person because they have terms of use. And if you really dig around on your news media's website, you'll find them. And they have rules like that, and they will take down the comment. By the way, I'll tell you my favorite thing at the Plain Dealer when I was still there, we called it DEFCON 1, where if commenters really just started to irritate the bejesus out of us, we could hit a button where they still saw their comment, but nobody else did. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. I wanted to use it all the time. The online people are like flatting, man. You can't do that with every commenter. And finally, you you have to remember your audience. For everything I've said about social media, the point is to be able to get to that audience. If you want to make a crisis go away, you have to get to the people that believe you and care about you and get your story to them, whether that's on social media or by walking up to them on the street and telling them. But you're not going to get there by staying silent. One last thing, and this is the only marketing part of my show. If you are interested in this and you want to know more, we do a twice-monthly newsletter. It's free. We have about 7,500 subscribers. It's stuff like this. It's all tips. Yeah, we use it to try to get new business, but it's tips. I write for it. My colleague, Howard Fensel, who ran WKYC for many years, writes for it. And we think it can help you. And then we go out on the internet and we look for stories that we think can help you. Give me a business card today. I'll get you signed up. If you want to go to crisiscommunications.com, you can sign up there or we'll get you signed up. I'd love for you to subscribe to it. I thank you for your time. Are there any questions? I got a couple of minutes. Any questions? Thank you all very much. You guys have been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.